0: Hey, this is Robin. that's Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, the Fleet Foxes' debut album, Fleet Foxes. Micaiah, the first album released by the Seattle-based band after two very successful EPs, what do our listeners need to know right up front about Fleet Foxes? Well, first, they should know that it
1: came out in 2008, uh, which is a, a very big year um, for music. For me personally, it's the year I turned 18. So, of course, music just felt more important that time. But when you look at 2008, there's just an incredible amount of like records, especially debut albums that came out that year. We've already talked about Vampire Weekend. We're going to talk about Fleet Foxes today and then Bony Bear uh, eventually in the season. But then you have these other kind of breakout bands. They kind of like shift like music. Um, MGMT, Oracular Spectacular. People don't talk about that record very much anymore. Great album. But it was a a bit of a shift in in music at the time. Um, And I still think it's highly influential, even though it's not going to make our our list. Uh, but there, there you know, a lot of great albums from 2008, and this is you know one of them. Uh, so much so that like Pitchfork named it number one of that year. Um, Rolling Stone had it at 11, um, and plenty places named it you know one of the best albums of the decade. You know, and so I mean this this thing was a sensation. I mean, like really, you know, like uh, they ended up playing SNL within a year of this album coming out. I think that like what happens with the Fleet Foxes debut album is a cultural shift in pop culture that is similar to music from big pink. Mm-hmm. Like when that came out, there was like, Oh, so you can use the the songs and the styles of music from the past and make something new in the music that you're producing. And releasing and the presentation of it tells you something about how you could live and that's what I think the impression was for that for that album because I mean the 2000s there was so much of the, the culture was uh, the the hip-hop like bling mm-hmm. fascination like dominated the 2000s even at this point like the Kanye like popped collar and the shutter shades that was such a big part of pop culture and something happens with a collection of bands flea foxes is one of them but also like bony bear and band of horses and grizzly bear where it's that bearded guy flannel shirt thing mm-hmm. i think uh, urban outfitters is a big part of like catching on to this and tapping into it where all of a sudden shabby chic is something that's Uh, like becomes like a fascination, like in like a interior design world, and all the weddings want to be outside and they want to be rustic and shabby chic. I don't think anyone who coined the term shabby chic listened to fleet foxes, (laughs) but I think it's the same thing that's in the air where there is this turn from, you know, like the, the millennium, like in the, you know, everything was like, especially in the beginning of the millennium, there were so many things that were just stylized with like chrome, the matrix kind of the aesthetics of the matrix, that very like digital computerized. So with all that fear of Y2K and like digitalization, something happens at the end of the two thousands with bands like leaf foxes, where there's a push for things like the outdoors with so much of these songs are about like the sunrise or squirrels or like birds chirping or rivers or mountains. There's this kind of push for it to like get away from the digital world not surprising this is also 2008 is the first year for the uh, record resurgence where people started buying lps again and this is an album that sub pop intentionally released on on lp to a point where in steven Dusner, uh former guest of the podcast in his initial review for pitchfork mentioned like oh this is going to be released on lp like that like it, it was nowhere it, to be. Yeah, it it triggered that like need to like go back to analog, to go back outside, to not just be fascinated with kind of the the digital world of the new millennium. And I don't know how long that lasted, um, but it was definitely felt, you know, as much as a small independently, you know, on on an indie label, you know, you know, not, not not a huge cultural footprint, yet I feel like it, it touched a lot of things indirectly um, with a much wider scope than people even know to give it credit for. So that, those are kind of some of my initial thoughts, and that's not even really the album. That's kind of just like the pop culture sensation that was Fleet Foxes and this sound and this vibe.
0: Yeah, and and I think it's been 15 years now, so I I think it's something worth mentioning as well. Just in thinking about how different the world was then, this was a band that had done, again, two EPs. They had done uh, a self-titled EP, and they did Sun Giant EP and releases both. And even at the time these EPs are coming out, they are recording new music very kind of rough demo versions of new music and immediately putting up on their myspace site so um you you want to really date yourself think about hearing music for the first time on a myspace page and that was one of the areas that they really kind of exploded but it was it was from the sheer number of plays they were getting on their myspace site that actually attracted some of the first uh, significant record label uh, success, and and ultimately they did a lot of they did a lot of meetings with a bunch of different subsidiaries of Warner Music, and and eventually um, you know the Seattle group signed to their local Sub Pop, where they released this album. But even during that period of time, from from essentially from the formation of the band through the next two years to when this album is finally released on April eighth of two thousand eight, the band had shifted in terms of the band members. I mean the the sheer number of replacements that have kind of come in. So Robin Pecknold is really kind of this is his band, and all of the pieces surrounding him seem to be pretty flexible. Um, But it's interesting as well. Some of the members who have come through this band, you you think about the cultural impact that the Fleet Foxes have. I mean, you know, former drummer Josh Tillman, essentially, you, you may know him as Father John Misty. That's Josh Tillman. That's Father John Misty, he was a former drummer of Fleet Foxes. Um, other members of the band have left to join other bands that have done well and have released albums over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, it's it's a really impressive group, but kind of like you said, they, they did something that was so interesting in that their music sounds so past-driven. It, it is music that sounds like something you would expect to hear from the late 60s or the early 70s um, or even some of kind of like the vocal groups that came out of the late 70s and early 80s, there, there's a lot of that going on in this music. But like you said, in a way that the, the collection of ingredients they put together makes something brand new and, and unique to Fleet Foxes, and what's incredible to me is every single one of their albums and EPs has been overwhelmingly praised by critics and even as we think about this being a band that, you know, had real cultural impact, they still have not had an album that uh that sold really well. I mean by by far their debut album was their best-selling album and yet that's still an album that has not sold a great deal in comparison to so many other other albums that we're talking about i'm looking at some of the awards that the album received in 2008 and in the aftermath and it's really interesting across again across the board this is an album that was was ranked so well was it was so appreciated by um by music critics and journalists and there's some interesting things um so what's fascinating to me is how much love it has gotten or it got in 2008 from british media sources so uh the guardian in its first in its first review of the album said it's a landmark in american music and instant classic uh, Q Magazine voted it the second best album of 2008. Uncut Magazine gave it their album of the year award and said it was the most rewarding album of the past 12 months. Uh, Mojo, and another big British magazine, referred to it again as the instant classic. And it was the first album in three years, given that instant classic label. Uh, it, really surprising in some ways it was reviewed better in the UK than it was in the US.
1: I mean, it has a very European cover mm-hmm. and also sub pop is not the only label kind of attached to the album. Now, there's also Bella union. Um, so there's that. So there's a really big push for them to get, you know, big in Europe and, you know, and they, they tour globally successfully. I mean, they, You know, they are not just an American sensation. I mean, they are are very successful. They do well. Um, I've seen them twice. I saw them in an amphitheater in Louisville when I moved up here in 2017 on the Crack Up Tour. And it was amazing. I mean, straight up incredible. And I'm going to see them again um, because they're still supporting Shore, which came out in 2020. But, of course, you know, they're kind of only just now. It's the second leg of that tour, I think, or third. So they're still, you know, getting to tour that. Um, So I'll be seeing them in a couple of months again. And I, I can't wait because uh, they're
0: amazing. Well, hey, let's uh before we get in to this album, track by track, I do want to talk a little bit more about this album. And it was a record produced by Phil Eck, who is a very well-known and respected producer who has worked really almost exclusively with Pacific Northwest bands. Throughout his entire career. Um, but he is the producer behind uh, nearly every Build to Spill album. He's the producer behind The Lonesome Crowded West by Modest Mouse. He is. The and pro- Moon in Antarctica. And Moon in Antarctica. Um, yeah. Uh, the Shins Shoots Too Narrow. She's to Begin by Band of Horses. Yeah. So, I mean, here's, here's someone who really is kind of at the epicenter of great Pacific Northwest music, and he hears this band play live for the first time and not only hops on to produce this album, but he actually helps them produce their very first EP as well. So Phil Eck was an early believer in the Fleet Foxes.
1: Yeah, and also a family friend of Robin Pecknold's. Oh, that I didn't know. Tell me more about that. I mean, that's about as much as I know is that, um, that that he had known him prior to, um, the EP, the first EP. So they, they had some sort of friendly relationship, but everyone in that band, even though it's a breakout debut album, everyone in that band had been in other successful bands in that region. You know, Robin, I forget which band he'd already been playing bass and touring with another band Some of them were in like Peter the Lion or something. So like uh, uh, Father John Misty was doing solo stuff, still going by Jay Tillman instead of Father John Misty. I mean, so like they were very active as a group of guys and Flea Foxes just seemed to be like, you know, just kind of uh, just another project for them. I think that's why it's been so flexible in terms of a lineup Hmm. because it's just been this like other... Just been like another project for a group of guys who were very prolific in their music scene. So for them just to kind of dip in and dip out, I think has been kind of easy, except for um, Robin, obviously, who's kind of the, the center of that mold.
0: What got you interested in this debut Fleet Fox's album?
1: Well, I didn't get into it until late 2008. Um, so Tyler Skirlock, who's been on the podcast on our Smiths episode and our emo bracket. Um. Uh, he was in it was his freshman year of college and I was in my senior year of high school and he was sending me mp3 files over instant messenger of Fleet Fox's tracks and he's like you gotta hear this it was that and forever ago he was sending me Boney Bear and Fleet is like you gotta listen to these that's a good and it was one of those things where just like oh okay so I guess this is who I am now like this is it was a complete like pivot it's just like i guess i am interested in this and it was, it was all about vampire weekend and mgmt over the summer and then by that winter it was all about Bony ver and flea fox it was a great year yeah and
0: um, seasonally appropriate for all four of those albums
1: yeah absolutely even though Bony Bear technically was released digitally in 2007 and self-released in 2007 officially came out in 2008, and, um, same with MGMT, is that it has a similar kind of wonky release date. And Fleet was released, uh, much earlier in the year. Um, but I didn't catch on to, I was in high school. I mean, I wasn't paying attention to the hip music like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so, so Tyler introduced me to them and, um, yeah, it became a, a whole thing of just like, okay, this is, this is great. Uh, this, this fits in very well with all of the, the Wilco and Sufjan I've been listening to, this is going to really help me into my young adulthood, kind of reshaping my, my musical interests and looking forward and looking backward, you know, um, cause you know, it, it points you to stuff from the past, uh, which is, you know, that's a, always a good thing for music to do. And going forward, I was like, yeah, this is the kind of stuff I'm going to be into. I can, you, you just get, you just could tell. It was like, this is exciting. It's like, you know, Hearing punk music as a kid, you're like, I'm going to devote my life to this. This is amazing, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, so that was kind of my first exposure, and it became one of those things—a very quick bonding thing when you met, when you meet people. It's just like, hey, you like flea foxes? Yeah, I like flea foxes. And it's like, all right, good. I'm in good company.
0: Yeah, for me, it was. Uh, it wasn't even 2008. Um, I definitely bunny bear. And Vampire Weekend were definitely early adoptees in 2008 for me. Um, Fleet Foxes it took me a, a longer time to grab a hold of. And I, and I think partially because of the album cover, you know the, the album cover is this old, you know old uh, uh, painting uh, by, by a Dutch painter. And you know it, it makes the album feel very old in some ways. Um, And so I I remember seeing the album cover, but just not having any interest because I hadn't heard about this band at all and hadn't really heard, you know, hadn't heard any music by them or heard anything about them. But at the beginning of 2009, beginning of the next year, uh, if you'll remember, there was this weird moment in time we were all living through. And I don't know if it was uh, the television show Glee or the Pitch Perfect movie or just this moment in time we were having where suddenly, like, choral groups, like, collegiate choral groups were the big thing. And, of course, my wife, who, um, you know, did choir and, and, like, competition choirs all through middle school and high school, um, we were watching some television show that was, like, a you know, like, a, a contest between different, like, choral performance groups. Was it and the I don't I'm trying to remember what it was, but what I will tell you is that I think we heard White Winter Hymnal for the first time and Meg immediately fell in love with it. And so that was the thing that, you know, White Winter Hymnal became our entry point into that album. And so I bought the album based really off that song and then kind of went, oh, this is really incredible. Like it was that single, the lead single of the album that actually got me into it. And, uh, yeah, by, by the summer of 2009, we were all in on Fleet Foxes.
1: I mean, that's, that's a song that, you know, I, when I got to college in fall of 2009, that's, that's playing in the college bookstore. When I go to buy my books for the first time, I'm like, okay, I feel safe here. This feels good. This feels all right.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Well, hey, listener, we're going to take a break. Makai and I are going to walk you track by track through this great album. But before we do, we want to take a moment and let you hear from our sponsors, Mirror Coffee Roasters and Spotify for Podcasters. We'll let you hear from them and then we'll be right back to talk about Fleet Foxes. I want to take a second and tell you a little bit about Mirror. Coffee Roasters. Mirror Coffee Roasters are pursuing excellence from coffee, farm to cup. The goal at Mirror Coffee Roasters has always been to use coffee as a tool for change, whether that's a bag of coffee on your kitchen counter or creating a sustainable, human-focused sourcing practice that goes far beyond generic marketing labels. No matter how you enjoy your coffee, Mirror Coffee Roasters is here. To help you on your journey and elevate your coffee experience. I want to encourage you to go to their website, mirrorcoffeeroasters.com today and check out their coffee box, a four-bag sampler box of some of their best coffees from Colombia, Guatemala, and Ethiopia. Check out Mirror Coffee Roasters today.
1: Something When I was going back to read Stephen Dusner's review for this album, and he says that the first track on this album is an uncredited song that had leaked previously called Red Squirrel or Red Squirrels. So he considered the, the kind of very beginning of the album like an untitled opener that's not listed on the album. Cause it had leaked previously as a separate song. And I thought I was like, Oh, that's kind of, I, I had never ever thought of that as anything other than being the beginning to the album. Yeah. Uh, which yeah, is a I very, know. very interesting uh, way to start a record.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is the first I'm hearing about it. I've, I had no clue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it feels, it felt from the first time I heard the album Um, it felt very much like a 90s alternative opening to an album. Like you would have this kind of random thing and then you'd go from that into this song, but the song would kind of almost be like a not fully formed thought. Like it it felt in some ways like most of the Bright Eyes album openers were like there's some gimmick to the song, you know, but eventually you end up arriving at some kind of song point. Like that's what it felt a lot like to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's... There's kind of no question about what the album is by the time you start it. Like, it's it's a statement, you know, but, like, and not in the way that we think of, like, great opening tracks. Like, it's not like I'm trying to break your heart kind of a statement. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, airbag. Like, okay, you know, like, it's not making any of those kinds. It's, it's a much more just like, hey, guys, sit tight. Uh, get some coffee or tea. And uh, let's go for let's go for a hike. You know, it's not just like buckle up, you guys. Here's the album. You know, it's you know a group of guys singing what sounds like is a song from the American Songbook with just their voices mm-hmm. on microphones that are less than excellent. You know, like it's 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 a it's a great statement that kind of just you know it's a bit of a, a prologue. You know, and it's, it's it says the tone perfectly. Um, but it is, you know, it's just it's just not what was popular at
0: that time. In some ways, the way in which The Sun It Rises works is because this is one of those albums. And, and by the way, this is every Fleet Foxes album. Every Fleet Foxes album has accomplished this in a really successful way. They are one of the most listenable bands meaning if I'm wanting to listen to the fleet foxes, I can put any of their albums on, on any side and Mm -hmm. just go and like, there's just a vibe like, yeah. Speaking
1: of their reach and influence, Mm -hmm. uh, an artist who I heard say that recently, who said the thing I love about fleet foxes is that they're one band where I love every single song. Yeah. Every album. And that artist was post Malone. Interesting. So that that's how far the reach goes. Um, you know, even people like Post Malone know, and and it's, the the feeling is mutual. Robin thinks that Post Malone has some of the best vocal melodies in, in pop music now. So yeah. th- there's mutual love and respect there.
0: That's cool. But yeah, so I mean, the, the way this this opener works is it really is it's setting it's setting that tone, it's setting that vibe, it's it's welcoming you in to an album that is is going to take good care of you it's you're going to be comfortable you're going to be settled in in this album mm-hmm. and and i and i really appreciate that like it's it's such you know we we're talking about what a great um kind of seasonally appropriate album this is for fall and winter like this is a cozy album and That's sun exactly it rises yeah it, it it starts you off in that place Let's get to the big single from the album, the shortest song on the album by more than 30 seconds. Um, The only song under three minutes on the album. And to this day, the album that nearly every single person will know from this album, White Winter Hymnal, And maybe this is a good place to start, Micaiah, as we go track through track through this album. Let's go ahead and highlight when we get to either one of our favorite five songs on the album. And going in chronological order, this would be my first White Winter Hymnal, a great just turnaround, simple choral song. This, in some ways, feels like a Christmas carol.
1: Yes, a great snowy song. Um, I I remember reading an interview or hearing an interview with Robin around this time. There was so much emphasis on their singing, Mm -hmm. and I think someone asked him like, "What's the hardest, the toughest song to sing in the set?" And he said, "White Winter Hymnal." And someone said, "Why?" He's like, "Because it's not really about anything, so it's kind of hard to like emotionally kind of engage because it's not about anything. People walking in the snow. I mean, there's there's not much to like really." you know, get you there if you're trying to sing and, and, and you know, a few of these songs like lyrically, um, aren't very deep. Um, so, you know, so much of what this album is praised for and is beloved about it is kind of just the vibe that sets musically. Like there is something about this music that people are really responding to. Uh, of course,
0: and I think, but I think the voices, I think the kind of choral element, the, the three part harmony singing and, in the heavy reverb on, on the vocal tracks, I think is, that's all part of that, that, yeah. that sound and that vibe. But I think because it's the sound that you're going for, what they're singing actually doesn't matter that much.
1: I mean, it's like when you go to church and you have a bunch of people singing in Latin, mm-hmm. you know Latin, but it still stirs you. Yeah. Right. In some sort of way. When the crystal sing to do run, run, which is a bunch of nonsense, it still stirs me. Yeah. Uh, so I don't need these words to mean that much. Of course, you know, my, my, the the name I was legally given was Michael. So it's always a thrill to hear your name in a song. So there's that, but yeah, but I mean, just, just really being like that really kind of a tunnel opening with this like snowy kind of song that follows it. Um, but you can also hear like the way the drums are recorded. Mm hmm you can tell they're kind of maybe hitting the drums like with like mallets instead of sticks to kind of give it like this kind of more
0: there's a softness there. There's a soft
1: and it's just a better tone mm. coming out of it. And it's not a kick like a you know, a floor tom hit with like a mallet it sounds like so it just it just sounds warmer. I mean, this is not in my top five, but there is like a little oversaturation of it. It's not a song where I'm like, Ugh, this song again. Um, but when I go to listen to Fleet Foxes. I'm not like champing at the bit to like get to this one because you know, it's, it's, I've, I've heard it quite a bit.
0: And of all uh, the songs on this album, this is the one you're most likely going to hear, you know, at the restaurant or in the mall or, you know, or grocery, like, yeah. like yeah. It, this, this is the song that you are most likely going to encounter in public unintentionally.
1: Yeah. But you know, it's that, it's that great kind of floor, Tom Mallet tambourine. instead of like a snare drum, Mm-hmm you know, and that's kind of the vibe, but I mean, and that's kind of like new slang by the shins, you know? So like they are building off of something, but what they're doing here with the voices, that's what sets them apart. Yeah. Like, and, and after this album, all of a sudden everyone's like, Oh yeah, people really like harmonies. We should be, (laughs) we should have harmonies in our music.
0: Yeah. And I think there's, I don't know if you kind of just passed by this, but, I do think when we think about the idea of the influence of this album, it's it's easy to take for granted that especially rock music and indie music of the late nineties and you know the early two thousands you know, it, it was really kind of single vocalist, very kind of screaming heavy or, or almost like the kind of singing that singing in such a way where you don't want to make it seem like you really care how good you're singing. Like a, a lot of people kind of almost intentionally singing a little off key and skewing their notes a little bit. And then to have a band come along and say, Oh no, like, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young sounded wonderful. Like Simon and Garfunkel sounded wonderful. We're going to do that. Beach Boys. Yeah. The Beach Boys. I mean, come on. Like five guys singing together. Like perfect.
1: Yeah. So I, I'm I'm glad you said that because I wanted to mention this too. About like how different it is from how the, the beginning of the 2000s were. Not just like broadly, but like it was all about the bands. Mm-hmm. The White Stripes. The, the, hives, steps, the, the hives the strokes the, hives, the strokes it was all about that the mm-hmm. the return to garage rock
0: Yeah, the, def- the the definite article bands you
1: know so like with the with jack white that kind of like uh, you know kind of screaming and shouting and the blues rock guitar uh with Flea foxes it's just instead of just having like a garage rock resurgence what happens at the end of, uh, end of the two thousands is like okay, let's let's make music that you can play in the living room or on your porch, something that you don't have to go to like a bar in New York or Detroit to find. Yeah, something. In
0: some you ways, can, it was taking accessibility even further than than all the the bands of the early two thousands.
1: Well, it was the, it's the folk music aesthetic, you know, just like you it's know, just like. Uh, if if you have to plug it in we don't want it you know what i mean you know
2: Uh-oh.
0: So let's get
1: into the third track.
0: Yeah, Ragged Wood. So this would be my second of my five favorite on the album. I think it is, again, if you think about the sequencing of this album, the the sequencing of these first three songs, Sun It Rises setting the tone for this album, White Winter Hymnal, you get a big sing-along single at the beginning. And then Ragged Wood in some ways feels like the first truly Fleet Foxes song on the album and it's really beautifully done. It it works perfectly in the sequencing of the album. And it's a song that starts to, you know, again, it is the longest song on the album and it starts to kind of spread the wings of this band and do what they begin to do, not only through the rest of this album, but through the rest of their career which is really to write songs in an almost kind of operatic way of writing the songs where they have these intentional kind of movements and breaks so that the song may start one way and then it's going to move. There's going to be a movement where it almost seems like it's transitioning into an entirely different song, but it all is how that song is designed. And it becomes in many ways, the trademark of robin Pecknold's writing style
1: yeah the structure is definitely an early i mean this becomes way more blown up i guess Mm -hmm. by the time you get to like the most the two most recent. well even on helplessness blues i mean this becomes like a a challenge i think for robin to like how far can we change these time signatures and uh how many different like layers how many like different songs can we make one song basically yeah Absolutely, uh, yeah. Right, so this would be the first of my top five. I I couldn't count how many mixed CDs I put this on.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, probably any time I knew we were going to be driving somewhere that would take us an hour or more, um, because it just has that that the, the shuffling on the drums, which just conjures the image of right, you know, tires and wheels going. So yeah. it was, it's a, it's a perfect road trip. If I'm if I'm going to do a road
0: trip mix, like this one's going to be the first song that comes to mind, essentially. Mm -hmm. I I think it's that thing too that that Simon and Garfunkel did so well, which is whether it is in a rhythm or in a like a swing or a feel of the song. Like there was so much Simon and Garfunkel music that felt like it was music for cross country road trips, and. Mm -hmm. And and that is something that Robin definitely has in his wheelhouse as well. Like that, that it really is something where you can, they are a great road trip band. Let's just put it that way. Like you, you could put any Fleet Foxes album on and start driving and it's going to feel right at home.
1: Yeah. But what's important is that these aren't, even though that's true. And I agree with you. These aren't songs that are about the open road though. No, not at all. So it's sun, the sun rising, a snowy winter hymnal, basically, you know, ragged wood, come down from the mountain, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the next song, Tiger Mountain Peasant, you know, so like the first four songs in particular are really trying to set a stage and set a tone for like what, what you should be imagining when you listen to this. And it is all of these kind of rural settings, the mountainside, the you know the the snow uh you know all, all that stuff and it works great um so yeah it, it, it's just so evocative and so beautiful that it's just i mean it, it, impossible for me to not be moved by it and to be like inspired by it Even in my-
0: mountain peasant song and i'll admit that this is my least favorite song on side a
1: whoa i mean i guess my least favorite would be sun it rises because it's hardly a song anyway
0: yeah i mean i I, if if, yeah if we if we throw out the the throw throw out the the opener i guess yeah um it, it it's it seems it seems an odd song because White Winter Hymnal, Ragged Wood, and then Quiet Houses—the song that follows it—are such great songs. All three of which are among my top five on the album. Tiger Mountain Peasant Song. It just it just doesn't live up to that run for me. Oh, brother, well, that's tough because this is my number two. Oh, One of the top five favorite songs. Gotcha. Of album. Well, then sell me on it, Makai. What do you love about Tiger Mountain Peasant Song? Well, I love that when, by the time that you get this big full band
1: Ragged Wood track, um, their instinct here is to pull it all back immediately. Uh, which I mean, even more than Sun Rises, this is pulled back because it's it's just Robin and the acoustic, and um, I think I think the guitar sounds amazing and I think um, this is maybe Robin's maybe best vocal performance but it's also because it's a solo vocal performance so um, it's interesting that they they wanted to have that on here or at least he wanted to have that on here um, that they don't just need all of the harmonies they don't need the kind of the gimmicks of like the harmonies you know that, that like reminds you of you know older music that um, there's this track also um mm-hmm. that just emphasizes one guitar sound and one voice but just um perfectly recorded uh, the way this guitar sounds and the way that his voice sounds but the chorus here i think is just still one of the best things in the flea fox's catalog i mean it's still one that he's like when they did the live very lonely solstice live album this is one of the songs that was on there and yeah, it makes but- sense
0: I, so I will say this the very lonely solstice recording if if it was that version on this then I, I would be with you because there is something really special about that performance and I'm with you it's it's a beautiful chorus in in some ways lyrically it almost reminds me of a national song like I I would I almost expect Matt Beringer to be singing this song like when when you get a line like "I'm turning myself into a demon," like that feels very no, at home sure. on, on like a national yeah. album more so than the rest of this album.
1: Yeah,
0: I mean, but the chorus Matt yeah. never in his life could do. Oh no, yeah, he he yeah. couldn't do "Deer Shadow Alive and Well."
1: Yeah, I mean, but and all that stuff is just it's it's very it's like romantic literature, mm-hmm. right? the American romantics. It, there's something that's like it reminds me of like Nathaniel Hawthorne and. And Emerson and Thoreau like there's just something uh, like very American about it. like Walt Whitman like it, it just seems like it has roots uh, and I mean lyrically I think this is where the album like really comes alive lyrically isn't this song mm-hmm. uh, and so I think that's really important to like okay this one's just gonna be vocals and guitar because this is gonna be a lyrics driven song it's not gonna be about people wearing scarves you know so I think it's a smart move to, to pull back and emphasize that um, and then earn kind of the bigger moments that also have great lyrics on on side too.
0: I, we're coming now to my my third of my five favorite al- songs on the album "Quiet Houses," and again, the demonstration that oh wait maybe this is a rock band. Yeah, this is where
1: the Laurel Canyon Valley really shows up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love this song too. This this might have been the first Fleet Foxes song I actually heard. And so, believe it or not, this is the song that I heard first. And I was like, I'm all in. Yeah. So I'm always going to have, like, love for it in that way. Um, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to put this as, mm, no, I'm going to hold on to it. Okay. Uh, my my only thing that I have to say about this song really is, I mean, first of all, I love it. It is a vibe. But this is another one where it is just like.
0: He's not saying anything.
1: Not Not a lot of lyrics. Yeah. Um, it's just people sounding beautiful and, and the band sounding beautiful. Um, but this, oh man, this song should just be called, you know, reverb city. Uh, Cause oh, if you love reverb, here you go. And I, and I do love reverb. So I love this song, but I'll tell you that I did have this on a mix CD. And when I was um, driving around with my mom, she said, you know, I don't, I don't think I was really paying attention to where we were in the song, but she said, are they saying doggy land? I said, what? Doggy land. I said, what are you talking about? Said, they're singing doggy land. I was like, no. Um, so and to her credit, every time I hear the song now, I hear doggy land oh uh, instead of don't give in and it's uh, it she's not wrong for thinking that.
0: Um, well, I mean look, that many people singing one line with that much reverb I get it
1: yeah something gets lost in, in translation there
0: yeah shout out to your mom who listens to most of our episodes so you know she'll she'll love it that we talked about a misheard lyric
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> which she's famous for of course she is a mom of course so she mishears lyrics all the time because i mean
0: come on it's what you do This is my, we're six songs in and we're already at my fourth. Of- it's a, it's a pretty front. If there's, if there's one knock against the
1: album is that it's very front loaded, mm-hmm. um, which, but I think side two is also strong. Um, but I mean, just these first like six tracks though, are just like, yeah, you can't, even if you want to just take out the first track and then have the following five, And stack those against the five on side two; they're pretty unbeatable. Yeah, Uh, it's, it's a it's a exceptional side one.
0: Oh, absolutely. And and so here we are, the the sixth track, but really kind of the fifth song on side one, and it's my fourth of my five favorites. He doesn't know why. And you know, talking about where Robin goes lyrically. There is something I really love about the lyrics of of this. Um, a, a beautiful song. I, I I like the the picture that he's painting of of kind of this idea of a a, a poverty that goes beyond money in the moment, almost like a poverty of the soul. And, and again, ending in this, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can say. There's nothing I can say. There's nothing I can do. Nothing I can do. Nothing I can say. Um, just a a beautiful song. And uh, again, another song that has great movements and great kind of changes through the course of the song.
1: Yeah. Uh, tied, I guess with tiger mountain peasant, this is a great vocal performance from Robin. Um, a case can be made that this is maybe the best song on the album. There's another one on side two tied for it, mm-hmm. uh, but this song rules. And this is this one kills live. I think they played. I, I think they um, they played like on Jules Holland. Mm-hmm. So you can like watch that online, then playing this, it was incredible. I mean, just I don't know, just like in like kind of like rock music, people hadn't been singing like this. Yeah. So it was just so refreshing and exciting and beautiful. And though the sentiment, you know, there's nothing I can do, there's nothing I can say, but to make it sound beautiful, though, is, you know, uh, inspiring or empowering or or something, you know, that this, I mean, this is, this song just really works. Um, Especially, you know, for people like us who were, you know, coming from emo. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, just kind of like big buildups big emotional chorus this actually has that yeah um and he's from seattle you know he was there for, i mean sunday day real estate you know, you know so i'm uh, i'm sure he was involved in some sort of emo adjacent music death cab mm-hmm. you know um but this for me you know in high school it's like you would hear something like this like this isn't that far away from kind of the emotional emo punk rock kind of stuff that I like, it's actually not that I can see how this is related. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's why that's one that I responded to very early on. And I guess still do,
0: but um, I, I have to tell you, I am, I am jealous that you had this song at your disposal as a high school senior.
1: Oh yeah. At 18 man. Oh boy. Did this hit.
0: Yeah, I mean there there is there is something about this song again a song I love one of my favorites on the album, but man if if I was a teenager when when I got exposed to this song, I mean that there's there's some power in this song for that moment. Pretty obvious. Yeah, and in a great closer to the first side of the album. So let's yeah. start uh, with a little
1: piano outro too to just be like, all right, got a little wild there. Mm-hmm. It's a little piano out a piano outro to to play you to the end of side one. Now you can turn it. on.
0: the strong songs are are front loaded on this album but i think what that actually creates an opportunity for on side b is side b it i mean it kind of all flows together like the, there is a cohesion to the way these five songs on side b work together that it i, I mean it's not the intentional b-side of abbey road thing where all the songs like flow into one another but but it kind of has a similar vibe to that that they it it all just works one after another um for me especially the final three songs i love the way the kind of uh core that those final three songs make but let's start with the opener of side b heard them stirring
1: yeah this side two is where they really kind of doubled down on for my ears, um, different instrumentation. Mm-hmm. Like you, like the first half of the album is very much guitar driven folk rock for the most part. And this really people sing it, but he now it's just like, all right, boys, go get those mandolins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these other kinds of sounds to where people were associating this with like Baroque pop. Yeah. You know? So like suddenly everyone's kind of like, Oh, there's something very like, Medieval, like, this is like the Middle Ages or something. It's just like, we have no idea that that's accurate. But there's something about... But people don't really think about this anymore because we have so much more of their music. But with that that painting as the album cover, and then with this song in particular, uh, people were like, oh, there's something, like, Baroque about this. There's something, like, medieval about this. This uh, folk, pop, chamber, pop, Baroque, pop. Um, so which set it not just in the 60s, but in a tradition that goes back centuries years old, mm-hmm. instead of just being like 40 years old, uh, which made it pretty timeless. And so for some people, that's probably where you might dip. Like, uh, no, I don't need to hear like that kind of sound, but um, but it works. And I think this, I mean, it, this is pretty much a, an instrumental track. Yeah. Um, but with again, like the, the choir singing. And for me, that's just like a lot of great beach boys, um, instrumental tracks like, um, um, the album friends has like a really great instrumental track that could very well be a beach boys track. Um, yeah, this is kind of a, you know, if, if side one, you take an intermission and then you come back for side two, this is kind of your, your overture you know to, to get you back in settle in all right you just you know put this on go take a seat go heat up your you know coffee or tea or whatever and then i um, in about three minutes we're gonna start the show again
0: If heard them stirring is the entree into side B uh, let's get in to, I think my, you know, this could change depending upon the day, but for today, my fifth of my five favorite songs on the album, your protector. It's a great song. Um, instead of the shuffling of the snare
1: drum on ragged wood, now we kind of have this epic, um, Shuffle on like the floor toms, the boom, the ka the You know, so like there's something like a,
0: like a battle march or something. Yeah. Um, is there a flute on this one? Yeah, too? there's a, there's there's flute on this. Yeah. And and one of the things I think it's probably worth mentioning for for any of you who have this album and you can le- read through the liner notes. Other than Robin Pecknell being recognized as songwriter, every member of the band is not delineated by what instruments they play. Every Mm -hmm. member of the band is simply credited as band member, arranger. And I think that speaks to how incredibly talented every multi-instrumentalist of this band is because everyone's playing a little bit of something. And so they do bring in a guest artist to play the flute on this song. But again, it just adds this extra layer into all of the things they're doing, and again, this kind of Robin Pecknold thing of designing a song to have these movements. When they get to the bridge of this song, you run with the devil. You run with the devil, um, man. There's again, it gets to that almost emo part where there's there's just power in that bridge, and then brings it back down.
1: I mean, and that's what I meant by earlier, be like, yes, they are into. Simon and Garfunkel and all the stuff from the sixties, but they're also filtering all of that as kids who grew up on built a spill and Ellie Smith. There's something like a little bit more punk rock and a little bit more indie rock there. Um, and it all comes through on stuff like this, but yeah, this one for me, this is the floor drum song, Tom mm-hmm. song, you know, just like, there's like, it's like a battle march. It's, um, very cool, very epic and very much just like the vibe of side two. It's, um, If side one's the dream, maybe side two is a bit of the nightmare.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You
2: walk along the street.
0: final three tracks, Meadowlarks, Blue Ridge Mountains, Oliver James. For me, I have grown so accustomed to listening to these three songs almost as one piece of music. Um, I, I love, I feel like Meadowlarks sets up Blue Ridge Mountains in such a beautiful way and then have Oliver James as not just the conclusion of this album, but kind of coming down the mountain from from Blue Ridge Mountains um there is the way these three songs work together um i i I just can't in my mind separate them out so we we can start with meadowlarks but for me meadowlarks is the prequel to blue ridge mountains
1: sure so you seem like a song cycle yeah i i i can i can i can see that i can hear that um yeah, Metalarks is. I mean, side two very much reflects side one because this would be like the kind of the maybe the Tiger Mountain Pheasant song mm-hmm. moment here, where they go real big with your protector like on Ragged Wood, and then they they pull it back again. Yeah, you know. So there's everything is so cleverly sequenced and so thoughtful and considerate. Um, so, but Metalarks is another beautiful song. Um, I yeah, I mean, I, I don't have much to say about. Metal Larks, other than I, I really like it and enjoy it. But it's never uh, been on the top of my my list of favorite songs uh, yeah. on the album.
0: And that, and that's really about it. It. Metal Larks is not, an al- it's not a song on this album I would ever put on a mix. I would ever put it on a playlist. Um, Met- Metal Larks only works for me in the context of this album, and I can't listen to Metal Larks without the expectation of those first notes of Blue Ridge Mountains coming in. That it 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 always functions that way in my mind.
1: Let's let's talk about Blue Ridge Mountains. Yeah, again, uh, pretty much defined by a floor tom mm-hmm. in terms of the rhythm section. In um, another, all right, so I should also say this is in my top five. So I guess that's four for me.
0: Yeah, in a really uh, in a really prevalent. Not that it's the first. I mean, it's clearly not the first time it's being used on the album, but the most prevalent upright bass playing on the album comes on this song. Well,
1: and also like the, it, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not so smart that I know exactly what sound they're making for like that riff. I feel like it's multiple instruments.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, so it's, it's there's let's it, it down multiple multiple guitars, multiple mandolins. There's there's clearly um, like I, a, like I don't some know some
1: sort of like electric piano that's made to sound like a harpsichord.
0: Yeah. Um, and I don't know if it's an actual um, dobro or if it's just a resonator guitar in an open tuning. Um, but yeah, there, I mean, you get a lot of it. It just just all of yeah, you there's,
1: know, there's so much happening that you can't almost identify it's just like every folk instrument in the world being played. Yeah. I mean, it's just like what it sounds like. That's how big. It's like the wall of sound for folk music. Like it's just, it's so yeah,
0: big. But I think it's that idea. It So the idea that if the wall of sound if if whether you're talking Phil Spector or you're talking um, Brian Wilson this this idea of okay here you know we're going to do this and this and this it again it's this stripping it down to the folk idea of that and going okay what would that sound like if electricity didn't exist and that's i mean it it's 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 wall of sound Without amplification, essentially, is the sound of this song.
1: Well, it can be achieved. Now, and I'm glad you mentioned that because this was also a time where the internet was doing actually exciting things. hmm Were you watching, like, there, there's a French group, La Blogotech. They had that video of Arcade Fire doing a song, Neon Bible in an Elevator. That's
0: awesome. I need to check that out.
1: So they, they did that, and then they had... Vampire Weekend were playing a song like In a Cab in Paris. Um, they did some stuff with Fleet Foxes too. And I think one of the songs they did was um, Sun Giant, was just them singing like in a big open room doing Sun Giant together. Yeah. But the other one that they did was this, this very tall room with a, just amazing reverb. And they had the band like just like in the round basically. And there was just someone with just like a floor Tom and maybe like a shaker or a tambourine. And they had like a melodica okay. and Robin was in the center with an acoustic and then they played blue Ridge mountain. Mel- and I watched that over and over and over again, that it was that idea that you have this like rock band, this folk band that could exist in, in anywhere just yeah. like if you just hand them the instruments they could put on the best show in the world and that's what those videos did they would have these american bands that would come into paris and they would just play anywhere in like in the streets or in this like random room and in, in an elevator just like with with just folk instruments and it was so anti the early 2000s and anti like where like pop music and like hip-hop was going just like Han, han, I mean, I think it became the precursor for the Tiny Desk concerts. That's mm-hmm. why I think, um, no, no offense to NPR, I don't want to accuse them of ripping anything off. But those um, Tech videos, is what I believe they're called, um, were huge for me just watching them. And the Blue Ridge Mountain one, is probably the best thing that they they did. Really primitive digital cameras, they don't look great. The longer they did it, the better they looked. But at the time, I thought they looked amazing even then. But going back now, I'm like, oh, boy, that's an old digital camera, huh?
0: Yeah. Man, I can't wait to check it out. And, listener, what we'll do is um, if you check in the info or in the notes for this episode on your podcasting platform uh, will include a link to the YouTube video of that blog performance that Makai is referencing. Cause I can't wait to check it out either. Um, man, what a great song. And, and I will say maybe it has my favorite Robin lyric in a quivering forest where the shivering dog rests, our good grandfather built a wooden nest. Um, I mean, it, it, it feels like uh, just just something really fun, like classic American poetry of the earliest twentieth century.
1: Yep, I agree. The best song on side two, I think, um, without question. And this one, um, if it's not, he doesn't know why. This could be the best song on the album. It's certainly the one that one that they, they still play live. They played this on SNL. You know, like this is kind of. I think at the time, they may have thought of it as like a crowning achievement kind of a song for them. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the climax of the album. Yeah.
0: Postlude song. And that's what Oliver James is the final mm-hmm. track of the album. And I think a great closing track for this album, again, probably, probably a song I, I don't normally take on its own. Uh, I think it is a good song. I think it can stand on its own, but the way that it functions across these three songs, uh, I think elevates it more than it ever does on its own.
1: Yeah. And for this one, for today, I'm putting this in my five mm-hmm. because it's a song that I was fine when I was younger after Blue Ridge Mountain, maybe ending the album, be like, okay, you know, but, or at least tune out by the time Oliver James came on. Yeah. But, uh, listening to it the last few times to get ready for this, I was just like, oh, I, I really, really like this song. I, I like that, um, Again, I think just Robin just... I mean, it's very consistent sonically with how it sounds, the the guitar and his voice. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. It's just... I think it's a, a, a really great way to end this record. Um, Oliver James, Washed in the Rain, No Longer. I think that's just like a really... You know, it's just great. I really... I don't know what to say because, I mean, this... Liking the song is pretty new to me, uh, so I don't have anything like really clever or anything to say about it. It's just but, it's just a
0: song that's grown on you. And yeah, and what yeah. a treat for an album that you've had access to for this long and that you've enjoyed for this long to yeah, still have a king. song grow on you. That's that's a treat. Yeah, absolutely.
2: On the way to your brother's house in the valley, deep by the river bridge, a cradle floating beside me. In the widest water on the bank against the stone, you will lift his body from the shore and bring him home. Oliver James washed in
0: Sounds like it's a, a no brainer here, but let me ask the question, anyways. Does this belong on our list? Yes,
1: I think this is one of the best albums of the 2000s. I think it's one of the best albums of the last 15 years. I think it is highly influential. Uh, I think it's underrated and underappreciated. We didn't say this. This for me is when I was personally offended when the Rolling Stone 2020 list came out and this was not on their 500. I don't know how that's possible. Like, I did not know how that was possible. Yeah. Um, I mean, so yeah. this is a, this is the reason for doing the podcast because for some reason, this is that, this has been like left out of this conversation of mm-hmm. being they're like, oh yeah, best time of the year, best time of the decade, sure, all time. So it's like, well, that, come on. Like, this thing, this thing's immaculate this thing is, you know, so yeah. So I, I think this is, I think I've been dominating it since season one. Cause I, I think it's the best, you know, what I was doing, like, yeah. No brainer for me. Full stop.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. And, uh, and again, Hey, I mean, this is one of the very few that we've done on our list where, you know, we're, we're essentially saying, Hey, Rolling Stone 2020 lists got this wrong. You forgot one. Yeah. And you forgot one you, that you ranked so highly on other lists of yours. Yeah. Inconsistent. Inconsistent. Well, hey, listener, we have decided that the Fleet Fox's self titled debut album is going on our list of one of the 100 greatest albums of all time. But what do you think? Do you think Fleet Foxes deserves to be on this list? If so, did we get this wrong? Should it be Sure? Could it be Helplessness Blues? Let us know. Reach out to us on Instagram at YouForgotOne, on Twitter at YouForgotOnePod. Of course, our website is YouForgotOne.com. And Micaiah, for everyone who's listening to this podcast, regardless of their format, what should they do?
1: Well, of course, you could always leave us a five-star review or you can do one better and even write a review. Um, it helps other people find the show and it lets us know what it is that you're enjoying so we can give you uh, more of what you like. Um, also, and perhaps more importantly, for your sake, uh, you should like, follow, or subscribe to the podcast. So once we drop new episodes, they're right there for you, ready to go once they're you know out there.
0: I love it. Well, listener, we have let you listen to the entirety of the songs from this album. And so we want to leave you with my favorite song from the most recent Fleet Foxes album, Shore, Here is Can I Believe You?